0: I wish I knew whose joke this is. That's stand-up comedian Mike Kaplan. He's considering our carefully researched hypothesis that partisanship is dulling the American sense of humor.
1: The short answer is no, and the long
0: answer is no. I'm Robert Pease, host of The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization in U.S. politics, society, and just plain daily life. Welcome to our first episode on the subject of comedy and partisanship with special guest Mike Kaplan. He's a 20 year stand up comedy veteran who's appeared on Conan, The Tonight Show, The Late Show, and released numerous comedy albums, including his most recent AKA.
2: And this is Emily Corsetti, staff reporter. And we know what you're thinking. What does partisanship have to do with stand-up comedy?
0: Actually, quite a bit. Comedians need to deliver surprising, entertaining material in venues all over the country.
2: And that's not an easy job to begin with, but possibly even more difficult after the past few decades due to political polarization.
0: Consider that tradition of comedians hosting the White House Correspondents' Dinner, as well as inaugural balls or Christmas parties. Way back in 1985, veteran insultologist Don Rickles was introduced to President Reagan as a Democrat by the seven year old master of ceremonies. I know this is a Republican celebration, but I have the honor of introducing a man who is so Democratic, he picks on everybody equally,
2: including that little kid.
0: Then Rickles turned on President Reagan. He's sitting there looking at the program, going, Where does he say he makes fun of me? Where does it say that? Comedian and impressionist Dana Carvey was invited to the White House Christmas Party in 1992 by one of his favorite SNL sketch characters, President George H.W. Bush.
2: And the two of them developed a very unlikely friendship from that point on.
1: (laughs) Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture.
2: (laughs) In 2000, Bill Clinton took a good hit from SNL impressionist Daryl Hammond. If you'd only take your clothes off and let me see you naked... There would be no more races.
0: And Barack Obama took a few punchlines in 2009 from comedian Wanda Sykes. You know, it's funny to me that they've never caught you smoking, but they somehow always catch
2: you with your shirt off. But there have been no more comedians at the White House since 2018, when Michelle Wolf performed at the Trump Correspondents' Dinner.
0: This despite the fact she took some pretty good swipes at Democrats.
2: Democrats are harder to make fun of because you guys don't do... Anything. (laughs) People think you might flip the house, but you guys always find a way to mess it up. You're somehow gonna lose by 12 points to a guy named Jeff Pedophile Nazi Doctor.
0: But made some pretty harsh POTUS jokes as well.
2: Like a porn star says when she's about to have sex with a Trump, let's get this over with. (laughs) And over the past 20 years, it seems that many comedians and comedy shows have themselves become more overtly partisan, such as the redness of the blue-collar comedy tour.
0: Or the predictable blueness of shows like SNL, Full Frontal, Last Week Tonight, and others. See if you can tell who's on which side of the partisan divide. You are not going to leave this room until you hear some You Might Be a Redneck! Has sparked a larger debate in America between people who want common-sense gun control and people who are wrong. In hopes that a non-discretionary religious figure who distributes gifts on said holiday would soon be there.
2: And I can see Russia from my house.
0: Not too difficult. So we wondered, as our country gets more tribal, how do comedians navigate the minefield? We asked Mike Kaplan for his thoughts.
2: And he was quick to push back at the notion that partisanship is a unique challenge for comedians.
1: Certainly, sometimes people aren't happy in various directions, but that's also a thing that has happened. No matter what, like sometimes I do remember even ten, ten years ago. I think I performed at a club in Wisconsin, Madison. Yeah, Madison, Wisconsin and i thought it went great uh also i was doing a joke about gay marriage at the time it was like it was pro it was or pro gay adoption i think it was essentially about how the research shows that gay parents are actually statistically better parents because they're never doing it by accident you know so it's always people who are prepared and you know whatever the joke was it was yeah. that was the point which i think was technically true and i feel like a woman came up to me afterwards and I, she told me uh she was like you're not supposed to tell me Uh, about what you like think and feel, which I think we might have a disagreement about like how comedy operates. uh, (laughs) Because in general, a a lot of uh, most, I don't wanna say everybody, but a lot of comedians do talk about what they think and feel uh, (laughs) in joke form as well. And there definitely were jokes to be clear.
0: Stand up is deeply human communication very different from video or online messaging.
2: And that reminds me of what Dr. Abigail Marsh said uh, in episode four on the importance of our senses for real communication.
0: You know, we're animals. Like we really, the way that, you know, the people around us smell and sound and feel, I mean, those are all things that moderate our brain activity at a really primitive level. Similar to Dr. Robert Elliott Smith, an expert on polarizing social media in episode five. The further you get from face-to-face communication with another person, the more dangerous the communication becomes.
2: Comedians though, at least on the road, don't get too far from face-to-face
1: communication.
0: And here's Mike Kaplan on one of his face-to-face moments.
1: I do remember I went to Fairbanks, Alaska sometime in the past decade, like probably closer to 10 years ago. And I remember was in a few towns, like within a few hours of Fairbanks. And I remember one seemed like, I don't know if they identified it as such, but it seemed like a like cowboy bar of a kind. It seemed like, and I remember at the time, I probably had a lot of jokes that were, you know, I had jokes about like being, let's say pro gay marriage and like that were liberal leaning. And I remember like somebody, you know, a cowboy type man came up to me afterwards. And he was like, uh, like said, probably said something like, I don't agree with everything that you, You say, but uh, thanks for coming, and it was enjoyable. Can stand-up comedy
0: transcend American partisanship? Here's the first part of our Q&A with Mike Kaplan on that question. Mm -hmm. Mike Kaplan, thanks for joining us. These are polarized times. We're wondering if, as a comedian, when you've
1: been touring around the country the past 20 years or so, how you've experienced that? Uh, thank you so much for asking. What a great question. Uh, the answer is uh, no, I'm a unifier to everybody. I am uh, I just bring any person together. They come to my show. They leave uh, thinking exactly what I think, uh, <laughs> whatever it was.
2: OK, well, so it sounds like you don't need to customize your material as you travel around. But are there any jokes that you've written in the past that you just kind of said like, oh, like, no, I cannot tell this joke?
1: I would say now. I have a few, I've like a number of comedy albums that I've recorded that I don't perform the material on them anymore. And there are jokes among them that I wouldn't tell now if I thought of it because I am a different person because I am, let's say perhaps, uh, you know, uh, slightly less ignorant than when I thought, said, believed the thing that I was saying at the time. So I've had some jokes like, you know, that are like anti-homophobia, anti-racism, anti-sexism. And every once in a while I'm like, oh, am I the person, like, what do I, a white person, have to say about racism? Am I the person, like for me personally, I'm like, I want to make sure that what I'm saying, you know, reflects what I, it's like, I think some, I've heard this thing once they th- they say, think about it, when you, when you're going to say something, is it kind? Is it true? And is it necessary? And in some ways, nothing that I'm saying is necessary. But uh, so I'm, I work on the, the first couple. And for a comedian, you're like, is it funny? So it's like, is it for me? I think about, it, is it funny? Is it important? Is it me? Is it true?
2: Okay. So have you ever turned down a gig because of restrictions?
1: Uh, I guess I, I don't turn down a lot of gigs. Uh, I, lo- I do like these opportunities. Like I, I like most of the time. I like the opportunity to do a show more than not do one. And so even if I guess I never really thought about this before, but if they're like, "Come here and you can't say any of these things," well, if I don't go there and don't do the show, then I won't say anything. you know? So <laughs> well, I hate to throw data into this conversation. I'd love it. But
0: a lot of data does show we're getting more partisan as a society. So we're just wondering if over the 20 years you've been doing stand-up, have these restrictions
1: increased in any way? It's interesting because one of the ways that things are being, uh, in my sort of anecdotal observations, being polarized is there might be some people that are like, hey, don't do that. And there might be some people that are like, even more like, we say whatever we want, you know, like the left was uh, uh, like, this is with the champions of that. And now you might, you know, caricature it in the other direction, the left being like, uh, not that you shouldn't say anything, but be like, hey, like the things that I'm like, maybe like, think about what you are saying, who you are. Are, why you're saying what you're saying, and like, you can say whatever you want, but what do you want to say? And then there's some people like on the right, perhaps, you know, more libertarian than conservative that are like, no, you, you know, we have the, the right to say whatever we want. And it's like, hey, weren't you just the, the ones earlier saying the other thing and then people. So it's kind of, I guess it's hard to say I, definitely if it is more polarized. Perhaps part of it is that we know we have so much, we have more data. We have more, more people are talking.
0: You're listening to The Purple Principle and our special guest today, Mike Kaplan, on the challenges of comedy in a partisan age. Emily, it seems like the best stand-up comedians have an independent streak. How else can they surprise us? The great George Carlin had his John Birch Society caricature. Thank you very much. The name is Lyle Higley. I'm the head of the local chapter of the John Birch Society. I'm what you might
2: call your local chapter head. And that's the New York chapter that takes in New York, New Jersey, and uh, parts of Idaho. But also his hippy-dippy weatherman.
0: I'll sleep here, you hippy-dippy weatherman.
1: With all the hippie dippy weather, man?
0: And in Bigger and Blacker, one of the great performances of all time, Chris Rock combined conservative social satire... If the kid call his grandmama Mommy and his mama Pam, he going
2: to jail! With way more progressive jokes. I had a cop pull me over the other
0: day, scared me so bad, made me think I stole my own car. So, how can comedians retain their independence in the midst of polarization... And also, political correctness and cancel culture.
2: The roster of famous comedians who've complained about PC is long and diverse, including Jerry Seinfeld, Larry the Cable Guy, Amy Schumer.
0: As well as Chris Rock, who said you can't even be offensive these days on your way to being inoffensive.
2: So then, what's left for comedy? Challenging times for comedians, it definitely seems. Here's more of our interview with Mike Kaplan on this topic. (music)
0: What about some of your friends in the business, Mike? Have have any of them had trouble on the basis of their
1: persona or the type of material they do? Oh, for sure. And for some of the things that they say offstage or on podcasts or how they live their lives. Um, and like uh, there are a number of friends of mine who are like funny people who I do know some like, let's say straight white male comedians are the ones who are making this point the most. They're like, oh, you can, can't say anything these days, you know, which, uh, you know, when Lenny Bruce and George Carlin were said, they, they were actually jailed for like literally like, I mean, you can say the thing, but then you'll go to jail. Like today it's, you can't say anything without no without there being a consequence. And that's I mean, sort of like physics as well, you know, for everything that happens, like, especially if you're like, hey, freedom of speech, I should be able to say whatever I want, and that, but you can't say anything back. And like, oh, that's freedom of speech over here, too, I think. Uh, it used to be, you know, you'd go on, if you're a comedian, go on the Tonight Show. And then people could watch it. They could send a letter to Johnny Carson and you would never see it. They could try to send a letter to your house. You would never see it. Uh, But now you're on Twitter. People can be like, hey, I didn't like what you did. And you're like, man, I can't, everything's changed. I used to be able to just say whatever I wanted. And then nobody, I would never know if anybody was sad.
0: So when you sit down and start thinking about new material, is it a little more difficult in an election year? Are Are there things you filter out because there's heightened sensitivity?
1: I would say that I don't, Talk on stage that much about like direct political things that are happening. Sometimes, if I thought of something and wanted to work on that, then I would, perhaps, more for the reason that there's such a, a shorter shelf life on current events material. That you know, if if I wrote an Amy Klobuchar joke, I'm like, oh no, too too late.
2: Right, right. That definitely does make it tough. But so when we started this podcast, we had to do a fair amount of audience research. And is that something that you need to do? Or have you been around long enough that you don't need to do that kind of thing anymore?
1: I would say that I don't do, I wouldn't say that I do quote unquote audience research, though certainly over the course of years, I've found like, oh, there's certain cities uh, that will bring me back uh, like to the club uh, because they like me or... It's sort of like if I found out that a woman liked me, I believe that there's science that shows that is an attractive quality. Like, you'll, I think a person will be more attracted to somebody who they know is attracted to them. Mm-hmm. So, similarly, geographically, if a city's like, come here, if a comedy venue's like, come here, I'm like, ooh, I like that city. Well, you know what I like about a city is that they like me.
2: <laughs> that does make sense. Uh- So but you were just talking a little bit about education and university towns and we've been doing some research and actually shows that people with higher levels of education had less accurate perceptions of their political opponents. That made me wonder if you've noticed that uh, among different audience reactions to your material depending on level of education.
1: Interesting question. Well, I mean, first, I think I I need to disclaim this by saying I have a very high level of education, so I don't think I know what I'm talking about Uh, (laughs) based on the research that I just learned and trust blindly. Uh, I mean, also, I sincerely don't know, unless I'm performing at a college, I mostly don't know the audience education level. And I mean, maybe if you're in a particular town and you know, like the general, like, you know income status of what the town seems like. But again, I don't like to make lots of generalizations.
2: So going back to the cowboy bar in Alaska and just the idea of performing for people who appear to have different life experiences, how has that shaped your perception?
1: A thing that is true, let's say, I'm starting this sentence without knowing where it's gonna go, but I know that like there's some ways in which we are all the same. There's some ways in which we are all unique. And so starting comedy was actually one of my first introductions to the fact like, oh, like not everybody did go to college. Not everybody had a family structure like mine. Not everybody like grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey. Not everybody, it was like a, you know, I was a new learning experience that so many people had started learning way before me. And then I would continue and am continuing to have those experiences now as well.
0: So, Emily, interesting stuff. Considering Mike Kaplan said he doesn't even do a lot of political humor.
2: But he said he did have some favorite political jokes from other comedians, like this one from a White House correspondence dinner.
1: There's a great Stephen Colbert line from when he did the White House press correspondence dinner, like right next to George Bush, George W. Bush in, you know, the mid-2000s. And he said something like, George W. Bush... Uh, is consistent, you know, he's a a man of his principles. He's like, he believes the same thing on Wednesday that he did on Monday, no matter what happened on Tuesday. (laughs) And there's a lot of Tuesday happening all throughout our society. It seems like Colbert made his point with that
0: joke, but not in an overly partisan way.
2: Agreed, and actually Mike explained a joke of his own that I think perfectly transcends the cultural divide.
1: I feel like one of the first vegetarian or vegan jokes that I wrote is I would say I am a vegan are there any other douchebags here. And I feel like that would be, you know, a nice way to connect with people who I feel like I I realized that people might sometimes people just get mad when you are vegan and tell them and uh, they're like, "Hey, what do you why are you being vegan at me?" as the "Why are you not, not eating animals at me? Why are you like and so nobody ever said that specifically, but kind of that vibe existed. So I felt like people would be like, "Hey, okay, he knows, he gets it, he is one." I okay, fine, okay, he's a self-aware vegan douchebag. That's uh, I can get on board with that.
0: That is a great bit. On the whole, though, wasn't Kaplan just a little evasive about partisanship on some of our questions?
2: I definitely felt that as well. What was Mike Kaplan hiding, or who was he protecting?
1: My grandmother was living in is living in Florida. Is still uh, it was living at this condo complex in the past couple of years, I think, and maybe during the either 2016 or 2018 election season, a woman candidate for some public office came to her home and was like, you know, knocking on doors, being like, hey, please vote for me. And my grandmother invited her in and like and gave her a drink of water and then My grandmother told her, I actually voted early, and I voted all Democrat. She told me, she's like, all all Democrats, even the bad ones, you know? So she's like, so if you're a Democrat, then I already voted for you. And the woman was like, I'm actually a Republican. And then my grandmother in the story to me, she's like, and can you believe I gave her water? And I was like, "Uh, you know, Grandma, I can believe it. And I do think as a Democrat, I feel like... Isn't that the side of things that wants everyone to have water? I feel like that's the one, like, what, like, you know, the, the liberal agenda includes water for all. Uh, I'm like, Flint, Michigan, you guys don't have water. We want, I mean, and not to say that there are Republicans who also wouldn't want uh, everyone to have clean water, but like, hey, find your own water. I may build yourself a well. I don't know, like, you know, like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make, make some water. And this is uh, an ignorant uh, caricature that I'm painting there.
0: This has been The Purple Principle with our featured guest today, stand-up comedian Mike Kaplan, whose most recent comedy album is A.K.A. There's more info at Mike, that's M-Y-Q, Kaplan.com. And stay tuned to The Purple Principle for our 360-degree tour of partisanship, including more interviews with comedians. Next up from that angle will be Shane Moss, touring comedian in safer times, and also host of the long-running science podcast, Here We Are. Here's a bit of that upcoming interview with Shane Moss. This whole
1: quarantine has been like a psychedelic experience, a global psychedelic trip. And then all of these interesting cognitive biases are coming to the surface too. Everyone's the most themselves they've ever been. The pessimists are the gloomiest they've ever been. The optimists are seeing the most silver linings and like the environmentalists are going, we've been telling you that mother nature was gonna have a revenge if we didn't watch out. And the evangelicals are like,
2: see, this is, we said this was, Jesus was gonna come back and this is the
1: rapture. Everyone was right about this apparently and everyone called it but somehow no one saw it coming all at the same time This is Robert Pease
0: for the Purple Principal team Emily Cresetti, staff reporter Kevin A. Klein, audio engineer Janice Murphy, marketing and audience outreach Emily Holloway, research and fact-checking All of today's music was composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney We have some questions about partisanship How did our grandparents get so partisan? How could we all get less partisan? And can independent-minded Americans help bridge the divide? Join us for more insight and discussion. We'd also love to hear from you via social media and our website at purpleprinciple.com.